There's a pretty nice view from Mountain View. I said Kathleen MacArthur to her friend Judith Wright on a bright summer's day. And I don't know about you, but my greatest fears are that someone will take all this beauty away. So let's fight, oh let's fight for it, I say. Little Fish Part Two, a lunch hour theatre script by Kathleen MacArthur. Another passion of Kathleen's was the Palmerston Passage. She was instrumental in getting it included in the register of the National Estate. While the listing of Palmerston Passage on the register did not provide any legal protection, Kathleen hoped it would, if given adequate publicity, bring it national prestige create a protectiveness in the minds of people, a pride of ownership and identification with its history and an awareness of its physical beauty and biological interest. In her book, Palmerston Passage, A Living Waterway, she makes a deeply felt plea for the protection of Palmerston Passage as a living waterway. Calm is the sea and the sky is calm. Only the light moves ceaselessly. Warm is the sun and the sea is warm. But the wind is cold from the inland. The mullet are moving towards the bar where dark-coated fishermen wait. But the white-winged birds go fishing far out into the mirror of light. I want to go where the white birds go to fish in that blinding light. To be one with the gulls and the terns and dive from the gannet's height. For I am caught in the golden mesh that is wrapped round the winter's day. Netters, birds and the silver blue fish, I join in the light on the bay. The dark-coated fishermen are watching and waiting for the moment of decision. The boat laying out the seine, its rower standing quietly and deftly revolving his oars. When the half-circle of net is put around the school, the fishermen are helped with the pulling in by eager volunteers amongst the spectators. Until, there on the beach, washed by the lapping waves, lies the heap of flicking, fat-bellied silver-blue fish. Mangroves, mullet, mud. The time is not yet ripe for their appreciation by the general public. The old woman knows this well. Their day will come. It is coming slowly, but so far my message has only reached the avant-garde. The love I have for mangroves, with viviparous seeds, breathing roots and their ability to tolerate salt water, admittedly, is only lessened slightly by their harbouring of mosquitoes and biting midges. But so does lush green lawn grass. Just ask anyone living on one of the artificial canal estates. That same very important person who told her that it was less visually offensive to take sand from under the sea later shared... I note that at least part of Pummerstone Passage is reserved under a state fish habitat reserve, and it would certainly be a serious matter if this reserve were encroached upon. Huh! That is quite safe. It is sticky, sticky mud down there in Tripkinny Bight. Actually, it's lovely, rich, detritus-filled mud. Mud full of food for fish, but clearly not nice, clean, saleable sand. So the fish may keep it. 
People talk glibly about oxygen from trees while seemingly ignorant of the fact that most of the oxygen on Earth comes out of the sea. Each year in June and July, Caloundra transforms into a natural amphitheatre when the brim starts spawning near the blue hole, just inside the bar. The hole is often dotted with dozens and dozens of little white boats, sometimes in excess of a hundred at a time. At a distance, contrasting against the dark blue of winter's water, they appear as a collective, packed so closely together that at times their fishing lines land in each other's boat. The brim by instinct go to their spawning grounds, and man, the fish predator follows them there. When Christ was asked the way to the kingdom of heaven, he replied, Follow the birds and the beasts and the fish, and they will lead you in. It turns out heaven appeared to be located at the Blue Hole, 12 hectares of pumped-up brim-spawning sand. To stabilise this valuable real estate-to-be, it needed the construction of a lengthy groin. Not everyone's idea of heaven are the same, as we all know. Some might see a marina, which would have moorings for 300 boats, and a Polynesian-style accommodation complex, as more desirable than sitting on a damp cloud twanging a hop. While the exact outcome of such interference on the natural ecosystem is unpredictable, some reaction can always be expected. Any construction thereby sets off a chain of increasingly complex interactions, ultimately visible by changes to the aquatic life in the estuary or by erosion to the foreshores. These changes occur across a spectrum of time, possibly centuries before a new equilibrium is established. A convention sponsored by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature suggested Australia's primary objective was to promote national and international awareness of the importance of wetlands conservation. Prime Minister of the time, Malcolm Fraser, urged communities to get on board. The task of environmental protection is one for the state and local governments, and above all, for the community as a whole. The old woman of the sea believed that in relation to the Caloundra Bar case, both the state and local governments were showing a complete lack of concern for the environment, thereby passing the onus for concern to the community. Where is the leader who can rally the community to take up the cause of the little fish? We all know why we don't have koalas and kangaroos in downtown Sydney, but few realise that underwater areas can be made just as unsuitable for fish through environmental despoliation. If only fish were kangaroos and prawns were koalas, then there might be a little more understanding. While international eyes continue to set their sights on Australia's environment, there is yet another important agreement signed between Australia and Japan for the protection of migratory birds and their habitats. This agreement was made by the Australian government and although it took over six years to achieve, all the states eventually adjusted their own legislation to fall into line. Now, as is well known, the sandbanks of our estuaries are the summer habitat for millions of waders in transit up and down the world from their Arctic breeding grounds to their Antarctic feeding grounds, which is a remarkable feat of migration. 
They poke their variously shaped bills into the sand and the mud to feed on all kinds of creatures that man seldom gives a thought to. Like, for instance, the thread-like larvae of biting midges. And for that alone, we should show the common midge more consideration. In addition to the waders, there are large flocks of terns which commute between Australia and Japan. They too use the sandbanks as a feeding ground. Taking up her binoculars, the old woman walked down to the shore where waders were feeding on the flats. In the flocks were both Terek and Curlew sandpipers, one with upturned bill and the other with its bill curved downwards. She watched them until her springs unwound, refreshed in every way. The sandpiper bird draws arrows on the wet sand with his wandering feet. If we drive the waders away from our shores by stealing their sandbanks, we needn't worry. In Caloundra, we'd still have street names for them. Curlew, Goodwit, Dotterel, Greenshank, Turnstone, Plover. Who knows? Perhaps we'll overhear an educational interaction between our generations and the next. Mummy, what is a sandpiper? It's a name given to streets all across the coast, my child. When the old woman of the sea made copious inquiries into the history of similar established constructions, one very honest engineer stated candidly that his profession devoted neither attention nor effort to catalogue and describe such engineering disasters, although he acknowledged that such were commonplace. Indeed, he went so far as to say that he knew of no beach harbour or marina constructions on the east coast of Australia that had not had problems. This, he suggested cynically, was how such works would guarantee employment for future generations of engineers. How unfortunate that the current approach to the management of our delicate coastal waters is 98% engineering, with only 2% for biological value. The imbalance will need to be redressed if we are to save our estuaries from certain sterility. If only we could replace the prime real estate sites with an underwater picture of seagrass beds that lie below. Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. Apart from providing sport or a meal, Few people take any interest in fish life. If they think about such matters at all, most people would not consider economically unimportant fishes to be worthy of protection. This is in contrast to birds and mammals, which many of us go dotty about. There are very many amateur ornithologists, but a very rare few amateur ichthyologists. Fish watching is simply not so convenient as bird watching. While snorkelling and the more skilled scuba diving are popular sports, where one can watch the moving picture of the creatures and plants down below. This is not a pastime for the shallow, more turbid waters of estuaries. How many people, for instance, have seen the little blennies peeping out from their oyster shell abode? The little crested blennies start mating very young. They set up house in an empty shell and never leave it. They never leave it. They groan to fill it, groan until they can't get out. They can't get out. In their one-room unit, there's no space for babes. Out into the wild sea you go, 
say Dad and Mum Blenny to their babes. Having arrived at this point, the old woman went back to check on her promises at the beginning, in case she had forgotten something. She had done as much and more, but she still worried. It had been a somewhat depressing exercise. The reader would have to do their own surmising while the old woman of the sea indulges us with a few more little fish. Little fish of the sea come in weird and wonderful shapes, colours and patterns. Let me introduce you to the cowfish. It upstages its namesake by having two sets of horns, one pair to the front, as would be expected, with a second pair presumably for attack in reverse gear, coloured in rich green with blue spots. We might think of many sea creatures as grotesque or even repulsive when judging them by human standards of beauty, and rather unkindly give them names like bearded ghoul and monkeyfish. An exception is made for the seahorses, which are universally loved as superb entertainers. I would have no problem making seahorse watching a fashionable pastime. Fascinating fish, the seahorse, has a head like a horse, a tail like a monkey, or a possum, and a pouch for its young like a kangaroo. Fascinating fish. Crew are asleep and the ocean's at rest And I'm singing this song to the one I love best Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry There are fish in the sea, there's no doubt about it Just as big as the ones that have ever come out of it Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. Little fish, when he's caught, he fights like a whale as he thrashes the water with his long, narrow tail. Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. Anchors away and the weather is fine And the captain's on deck laying out other lines Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry Yo ho, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry This podcast series was produced by the Sunshine Coast Council Heritage Library with the support of a strategic priority grant from the State Library of Queensland. This series was produced in 2022 and may not be reproduced for any commercial or non-commercial interest.